Well, if you think that was a quiet weekend in crypto, believe me, you weren't paying attention. Good morning. You're listening to the Rise in Crypto podcast by Cointelegraph with me, Robert Bags, steering you through the crypto cosmos with daily dispatches from the digital frontier. If you want to ensure you are at the forefront of everything happening in crypto, make sure you click that follow button. Grab yourself a coffee and let's get into it. Bitcoin's price might not have moved much over the weekend, but I assure you there is a lot I need to catch you up on. We'll start with some Bitcoin updates, including analysis on why Bitcoin is unlikely to hit a new all-time high before the halving. Then we'll look at why Coinbase has dropped Bitcoin payments from its merchants platform, how Sam Altman's Worldcoin project has seen its token soar in price, and why FTX creditors are suing Sullivan and Cromwell over alleged fraud involvement. So yes, Bitcoin's price didn't move all that much this weekend, but that isn't to say there is nothing worth discussing here. If you only read about Bitcoin when there are wild price swings, you'll miss all the good stuff. Marcel Petchman, a crypto analyst and writer at Cointelegraph, produced an excellent piece of analysis this weekend on whether Bitcoin will hit a new all-time high by the halving event as some have predicted. As it stands, Bitcoin is 10th in the world's top tradable assets with a market capitalization of just over $1 trillion. To hit a new all-time high, it would need to rally 34.5% from the $52,000 price we have seen lately. And this is on top of the 91% rally we've seen in the past four months. So Marcel asked the questions of whether the current conditions support a $1.35 trillion valuation of Bitcoin. Marcel, in essence, believes that a new all-time high for Bitcoin before the halving event is unlikely, but that the long-term vision is as healthy as ever. The best way of looking at it is by comparing the situation of November 2021 when Bitcoin hit that $69,000 ceiling. As Marcel puts it, it was fueled by low interest rates and skyrocketing inflation. As of January, the latest consumer price index figures we have, inflation is 3.1% year over year compared to a whopping 6.8% year over year in November 2021. Now, another interesting point that Marcel raises is how the S&P 500 relates to Bitcoin investments. In short, the S&P 500 is performing so well that Marcel says investors have little incentive to seek alternative assets compared to late 2021. But as for the long term, Marcel believes that the spot Bitcoin ETFs help evolve Bitcoin into a mature asset class. This is a sentiment we've seen from the likes of Kathy Wood of ARK Investment, among others. This would lead us back into the gold ETF versus Bitcoin ETF debate that I've discussed twice in the past two weeks, so I'm just going to sidestep that. Marcel concludes his analysis with the following. So as long as the dollar continues to deteriorate, there is hope for Bitcoin to surge above $70,000, but it's unlikely to happen ahead of the halving in April. There are another two Bitcoin-related updates, and this one is interesting, albeit rather brief. On Thursday the 15th of February, there was an automated readjustment of mining difficulty. These tend to happen around twice per month. And simply put, they change how difficult it is to solve the cryptographic puzzles used in the mining process. The more difficult it is, the more computing power is needed to solve it. The last adjustment was on the 2nd of February, and it was an increase in difficulty of 7.33%. The adjustment on the 15th was expected to be around 6%, but was in fact an 8.24% increase. Incidentally, I went through btc.com's stats and found that that is the biggest jump in difficulty since the 15th of January 2023. Bitcoin's difficulty level has more than doubled in the past year, and with the difficulty now at 81.73 trillion, it represents a new all-time high. 
Now, as I discussed last week, the halving event could mean that some older, less efficient mining rigs could go offline. It was 15 to 20% of the hash rate, which is computing power on the network, according to Galaxy's analysis. And this perpetually increasing difficulty will certainly add to that strain. However, as Bitcoin is self-correcting, the halving will likely see a drop in difficulty as the less efficient miners power down. Still, this is a very interesting all-time high to hit. And some are predicting that the difficulty will hit 100 trillion in the next few months. The final Bitcoin update also pertains to Coinbase. A popular Coinbase product, Coinbase Commerce, is a way for merchants to accept payments in cryptocurrencies. However, in a thread on X yesterday, Coinbase's head of product, Lauren Dowling, announced that Coinbase has removed support for native Bitcoin and other UTXO coins from its payment platform. Dowling wrote, The new commerce product enforces the details of each payment on-chain, supports hundreds of assets, native and ERC-20s, and automatically converts payments to USDC on-chain at a guaranteed rate to merchants. Delivering these same capabilities on the Bitcoin blockchain without smart contracts and stablecoins was challenging, and therefore we made the difficult decision to remove native Bitcoin and other UTXO support. UTXO stands for Unspent Transaction Output and is essentially how much crypto is left after a transaction is executed, like your sort of digital change. Although Bitcoin is not UTXO per se, the distributed ledger technology that underpins Bitcoin does use UTXO. Ethereum-based assets that lean on smart contracts are easier to work with in the way that Coinbase Commerce wants to. So Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Litecoin, Dash and Bitcoin Cash, among others, are no longer supported. That is, unless the shopper buying something from a merchant with Coinbase Commerce also has their own account with the exchange. Coinbase's CEO, Brian Armstrong, added on X that the company is hopeful of integrating payments on the Lightning Network to facilitate transactions within the Bitcoin blockchain. Interestingly, Armstrong added that, Zooming out, we think paying for stuff online with crypto won't really go mainstream until we get off layer one and reduce transaction fees and confirmation times. So we're trying to accelerate the move toward that world. As you might expect, some in the crypto community were less than pleased with this news, implying that Coinbase is using this to force people to open a Coinbase account and that some people are not even able to do that due to where they live. I'd say it's far more likely that this is part of an ongoing struggle with regulations though. But either way, for now, unless you have a Coinbase account with Bitcoin in it, you won't be able to pay for things with Bitcoin using Coinbase Commerce. Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, is very much in the limelight at present because of OpenAI's new product, Sora, which allows the creation of absurdly realistic videos from text prompts. Honestly, it is wild. Go look it up if it isn't something you've seen or heard about already, but that's not what this story is about. Another project co-founded by Altman is Worldcoin, which we've discussed before. If you remember, I used Worldcoin last summer while researching the concept for a podcast. Worldcoin is a privacy-preserving digital identity that aims to offer universal basic income with monthly grants of its token, WLD. Now, I like Worldcoin, but it is a bit Orwellian in places, particularly when a silver orb is deep-scanning your eye. But it is interesting, and proof of personhood, as Worldcoin puts it, is becoming increasingly more relevant and important, particularly with the rise of AI, which is also largely Altman. That's got to be firing up some conspiracy theories. 
although it's also not helped by the criticisms over personal data privacy that has led to its WorldCoin services being suspended in Kenya and the iris scans stopped in India. Incidentally, and I'm not sure if this is related, there are no orbs in the UK anymore. Anyway, WorldCoin announced over the weekend that the World app, the project's official app, has passed 1 million daily users. Alongside this, WorldCoin's token, WLD, has soared 140% in a week. And this is likely a result of several factors. Firstly, the uptick in adoption cannot be ignored. The app had 100,000 daily users in November, and they've 10x that by mid-February. Secondly, of course, the crypto sector as a whole has been rallying of late. And thirdly, the aforementioned Sora announcement has likely seen people bullish about all of Altman's projects. Whatever the reasons, WorldCoin is a fascinating project to track from many different perspectives. And finally, we're going to end with what might be the biggest story of the weekend. It's yet another layer to the FTX saga. One story we have repeatedly returned to over the last few months has been the legal fees in the FTX bankruptcy proceedings. An article from earlier this month by Amaco Noel Kocha gave a great summary of how much it's all costing. I'm just going to quickly read an extract from that. In the quarter ending the 31st of October 2023, FTX spent around $53,000 per hour on legal and advisory fees, according to recent compensation filings. Documents from December 5th to December 16th, 2023, reveal that the bankruptcy legal team billed at least $118.1 million from the 1st of August to the 31st of October, averaging $1.3 million per day or $53,300 per hour over the 92 days. Now, you might recall that one person that has been slamming these costs is the former SEC official John Reed Stark, and he has taken to X a few times to criticise the exorbitant fees. After the concept of an FTX 2.0 relaunch was scrapped, Stark wrote, Dare I ask this question? How much in legal and consulting fees were scavenged from the rotting corpse of FTX before coming to this patently obvious conclusion? Stark then went on to say one of my favourite lines about this whole FTX ordeal, which was that these legal and advisory fees are highway robbery of highway robbers. The chief beneficiary of these legal proceedings is a firm called Sullivan and Cromwell, and they're estimated to make hundreds of millions of dollars throughout this case. They have around 150 people working on the case, with 30 partners billing $2,000 per hour. Even their associates are charging up to $1,500 per hour. Now, in the interest of fairness, these fees may not be completely untypical of a major law firm working on a major case, and the billings were signed off in court. Another example is the law firm in New York, Weil Gottschall, that made $500 million from the bankruptcy of the Lehman Brothers. However, things have got more serious for Sullivan and Cromwell, as it has emerged that the legal firm is being sued in a class action lawsuit by FTX's creditors. The creditors claim that Sullivan and Cromwell actively participated in the FTX Group's multi-billion dollar fraud. The filing reads, Sullivan and Cromwell knew of FTX US and FTX Trading Limited's omissions, untruthful and fraudulent conduct and misappropriation of class members' funds. Despite this knowledge, Sullivan and Cromwell stood to financially gain from the FTX Group's misconduct and so agreed, at least impliedly, to assist that unlawful conduct for its own gain. The lawsuit seeks damages for charges such as civil conspiracy, aiding and abetting fraud, and aiding and abetting fiduciary breaches. So now there is a bit of a push and pull situation going on over how close a relationship FTX and Sullivan and Cromwell had. 
The relationship began as a result of Ryan Miller, a former partner at the law firm, joining the FTX Group as general counsel and purposely channeling cases back to Sullivan and Cromwell. But the complaint also states that FTX's ex-CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, would often work in Sullivan and Cromwell's offices as they had such a close relationship. But I'll quote Anna Paula Pereira's article for the other side of this coin. In a previous statement to Cointelegraph, a spokesperson for the law firm denied any wrongdoing, saying that Sullivan and Cromwell had never served as primary outside counsel to any FTX entity and had a limited and largely transactional relationship with FTX and certain affiliates prior to the bankruptcy. Interestingly, this isn't the first time we've seen the suggestion of a conflict of interest with Sullivan and Cromwell representing FTX. In January 2023, a bipartisan group of United States senators wrote to a judge calling for an independent examiner as they claimed that Sullivan and Cromwell were not in a position to uncover the information needed to ensure confidence in any investigation or findings. So this could be a new and major chapter in what seems to be a never-ending FTX story. Well, I did say that a lot had happened, and this might be the longest episode of Rise and Crypto so far, but true to our word, it is still under 15 minutes, and that is it for today, so consider yourself informed. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Crypto podcast by Cointelegraph. If you're enjoying these daily updates, please make sure you let us know by following, subscribing, or leaving a review. Have a great day. Let's do this again tomorrow. <laughs>